Let's now turn to our scripture reading this afternoon. Uh, You can see there's a number of places that we're going to go to. None of them are particularly long, uh, but they certainly are numerous. Uh, We'll start in Job, the book of Job. Job chapter 19. Job 19, we'll read verses 13 through 29. These here are the words of Job. He, that is God, has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how we will pursue Him, and the root of the matter is found in Him, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. So far from Job, let's also turn now to John chapter 11. John 11, verses 17 through 27. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet, he shall, yet shall he live. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So far from John, let's also turn to Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, we'll read the verses 10 through 21. This is Paul's defense before the king Felix, or the governor rather. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So far from Acts 21. uh, Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians. First Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power." Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I, take the, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. But do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Finally, one more text we'll read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
2 Corinthians 5, the verses 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So far, the reading of God's Word. As we reflect on all that we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 73, stanzas 7 and 8. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, the confession of our church, and a summary of the Christian faith, and we work through the doctrines of the faith. We find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 22, that's on page 536 of your books of praise, if you wish to follow along. We're only going to read the first question and answer. So there the question is, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? Not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. So far, the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we near the end of our study in the Apostles' Creed, we're now at the second last article in the Creed, we, we arrive at this very, very basic Christian confession, I believe in the resurrection of the body. Now I hope one of the things you picked up from our readings of Scripture is that this is a very, uh, one, one of the most basic Christian convictions that's been there right from the very beginning. It's there, in fact, even in the Old Testament, as we saw in Job. Uh, and then as, we, as the uh, people of God came into the New Testament times, they held on to that same conviction. Uh, and it's one of the most uh, basic confessions of the Christian faith as well. Now, we should uh, probably begin by making sure that we're actually hearing what this confession states, what the article says. Uh, the article in the Apostles' Creed is, I believe in the resurrection of the body. The body. Uh, there, are, there are some uh, ancient versions of the creed that uh, also say the flesh, and, and it's speaking there of the same thing, the resurrection of the flesh. So it's good for us to just note what's not being said here is, I believe in the resurrection of the soul. 
though we certainly do. Or even, I believe in heaven or life after death, though we certainly do. That's not what this article of the Creed is talking about, but rather, I believe in the resurrection of the body, uh, the flesh. Now, it might be surprising then uh, that that point, that that conviction was so important to the early Christians, uh, in the, in both in the New Testament times and in the times of the Apostles' Creed, when that was written, uh, given, it might be surprising, given how little attention is paid to the body and the final resurrection in contemporary Christianity today. Uh, in much of contemporary Christianity, all of the emphasis is placed on the conviction that we will go to heaven after we die. You can observe this if you visit any funerals. Uh, More often than not, the emphasis falls on the fact that the person is in a better place or is in heaven. Uh, Well, that would not have been the message you would have heard at an early Christian funeral, at least not the primary message. Uh, Their hope was fixated not on heaven, the intermediate state, but rather on the resurrection, the final state. Uh, Their hope was fixed on the last day. You can see an example of this in Paul's defense before the governor Felix, which we read in Acts 24. Uh, In in two short verses, in verses 14 and 15, Paul summarizes the basic Christian conviction, the Christian teaching, the the doctrine of what he calls the way. Uh, So he says in verse 14, This I confess to you, that according to the way which they call, that is the Jews call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men also accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In that same text, then, Paul goes on to describe the circumstances under which he came to be arrested in Jerusalem. And he defends his innocence, saying, look, if they have an accusation against me, Let them come. Let them bring it. If they're not here, I shouldn't be here uh, either. Uh, But he says, the one thing I did wrong, the one thing that caused me to be arrested is this. He says, while I was standing among them, I said, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Uh, So Paul explains the reason he's on trial, the reason he was arrested, and and the reason he was being persecuted by the Jewish authorities was because of his belief in the resurrection. Now, uh, Paul is is playing a certain strategy here. Uh, What he's doing is he's playing upon a division that existed among the Jewish people. The Jewish authorities were the Sadducees, those who had power, those who were the wealthy and the elite, uh, and those who ran the temple, the high priests, uh, and and all of them were largely Sadducees. Uh, And and they are contrasted with the conservative Jews, uh, which were the Pharisees. Uh, And so what Paul's doing is he stands before Felix, uh, is he says, the reason I'm on trial is because of this conviction in the resurrection of the dead, which was a belief the Pharisees also held. Uh, So Paul is being a bit sly here. He's playing uh, to his favor, pointing out to all the Pharisees present at his trial, I'm on your team. 
uh, I'm, I'm in trouble for the same thing you guys also believe. Uh, that's why uh, in, uh, at the end of it all, the, the, some of the Pharisees stood up at that trial and they decided, we find nothing wrong with this man. Perhaps a spirit or perhaps an angel did speak to him after all. So uh, he's playing to that division. Uh, Now, my point uh, in reading this is not to uh, debate the wisdom of Paul's craftiness or slyness in uh, playing to that division, uh, but to make clear uh, that that as, as a Christian, just as a Pharisee, he believed as a fundamental truth of God that the dead would be raised in the flesh, in the body. Now, there are many reasons why the, the Pharisees believed that. Uh, the Pharisees were, after all, students of Scripture. Uh, and though they got many things wrong, they also got many things right. Uh, it's attested uh, in Scripture in many places in, in the Old Testament where, where Scripture speaks of the resurrection of the dead. We read from Job uh, chapter 19 where Job, when he feels the, the last strength in his body slipping away, uh, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the last day he will stand on the earth and even after my skin, so he's thinking of the flesh, after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet In my flesh I shall see God, whom I will see for myself, and my eyes will behold and not another. Uh, So notice that with Job, his hope, Job's hope, was not simply that if he were to die, he would go to heaven. Job's hope uh, was that his Redeemer would stand on the earth and he would see him in his own flesh. Just like Christians, uh, the, the Jews of the Old Testament looked forward not to the intermediate state, but to the final state when they see God in their own flesh. And we can point to other examples in the Old Testament. Uh, the f- first verses of Daniel chapter 12 also speak of a bodily resurrection that's connected with the Messiah's coming in which the dead would rise out of their graves and go either to everlasting life or everlasting punishment. Uh, likewise, many of the Psalms, we sing a few of them. Psalm 49, Psalm 73, uh, look forward to the resurrection Uh, Psalm 49 talks about Sheol, that is, uh, the world of the dead or the state of death uh, and the grave uh, as the destination of all people, the wise, the foolish, the rich, the poor. They're all headed to the grave, uh, he says. But then he he says, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Uh, There's a hope uh, for God to ransom us. Uh, and uh, even though he, he says, God will ransom my soul, when, when you read that in the context, it clearly means the whole of me. God will ransom all of me from Sheol, since all of me will go into Sheol. Uh, so, so we see this in the Psalms, we see this in Job, we see this in Daniel and in other places. When we get to the New Testament, in the days of the Gospel, however, the Pharisees and Sadducees were divided over this question. Uh, The Sadducees, again, the upper priestly class, uh, really the theological liberals of their day, uh, were the ones who who mixed uh, scriptural teaching with with, uh, Greek philosophy, and so they reinterpreted scripture accordingly. The Greeks had a very low view of the body. They saw it as something to be discarded and thrown away. 
uh, it was really a prison in which the soul was, was stuck trying to get out. Uh, and so the Sadducees just rejected any idea of any final resurrection and held that, that souls will simply remain in Hades, in Sheol, for the rest of uh, eternity. Uh, but the Pharisees were, were the Bible-believing Jews uh, who continued to hold to the resurrection. And we see an example of this also in John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, uh, uh, who, who was the brother of Mary and Martha of Bethany. And so when Lazarus had died, Jesus shows up in Bethany and he says to Martha, your brother will rise again. And you can tell Martha and, and her family belonged to the Pharisees uh, because she says, I know that he will rise again on the last day. Uh, so that they were a family of, of Pharisees. Not all the Pharisees were bad uh, uh, or unbelieving. Uh, so, so clearly Martha and her, her family belonged to those Jews that held to a final resurrection. Now, of course, Jesus then says to her, I am the resurrection. It's come, it comes in me. Whoever uh, believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So here's the Christian conviction that Jesus both died in his body for our sins and rose in his body for our eternal life. Uh, and therefore, all of us who are united to him, though we may die in our bodies, yet our bodies too shall rise. Now, we are not merely united to Christ in spirit. We are united to his very flesh. Uh, his, because his body rose, ours too shall rise. Now, we see in the book of Acts as well, uh, the, uh, how, how this conviction was, was so countercultural, not only against the Jewish elite, but also against the Greeks. Uh, we didn't read from it, but in Acts 17, when Paul preaches to the Greeks, the wise uh, philosophers in Athens, uh, the moment he mentions a bodily resurrection, the crowd busts up laughing. Uh, they mocked him, and they thought, that's silly, that's stupid. Why would the body rise? It's evil. We don't want it to rise. So they, they mocked him. Well, this belief in the resurrection of the body uh, was basic to the Christian way. It was hugely countercultural. It was not something the culture as a whole held to, uh, but it is something that Christians both held to and were willing even to die for. As Paul is on trial and says, this is what I'm on trial for. Uh, yet one more example of this shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, we also didn't read this text, but some of the members of the Corinthian church uh, were, were, were teaching that there is no resurrection. They too were influenced by this Greek uh, thinking. Uh, so they were teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. Uh, and so Paul devotes that entire chapter, all of chapter 15, one of the longest chapters uh, in the New Testament, uh, Paul devotes that entire chapter to refuting that point. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Now, what we should learn from all of this then uh, is that there is a close connection between the bodily resurrection of Jesus uh, and the bodily resurrection that we also await uh, that is still to come. Uh, by faith, 
through the Spirit, we are united to Christ, and not just part of Christ, but to the whole Christ. Not just to His soul or His Spirit, but also to His body. After all, it was His body that was born into the world. That's what we uh, celebrate on Christmas. It was His body that was nailed to the cross for our sins, uh, and it was His body that was raised from the dead for our salvation. All of these things Christ did in His body, and He did for us. Uh, This leads to a question that uh, often comes up. I often hear this question also in catechism classes. Uh, Will we have a body in heaven? Again, we're thinking heaven, not the new earth, in heaven, in the intermediate state. Do those who die uh, today and go to be with the Lord, do they have a body? Well, there's no indication in Scripture that they do, that we possess any sort of body in heaven. Uh, We should remember, for one thing, heaven is, as far as we uh, know, a spiritual rather than a physical place. Uh, God himself is spirit. Uh, The angels also are spiritual beings, uh, not physical beings. So heaven, the dwelling place of God and the dwelling place of the angels, is a spiritual place. Uh, But we are not only spirit, are we? We are body and spirit, uh, a union of of body and spirit. Uh, And this is why our eternal home is not heaven. Our eternal home is the earth, the new earth. Uh, And that's what we ultimately await, a physical place for physical creatures. Uh, And this is precisely why we ought to fixate our hope not on the intermediate state, but on the final state. Uh, There is comfort in the knowledge to be sure that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. Uh, It is a great blessing to be at home, uh, Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5, to be at home with the Lord. That's even better than being away from, from the Lord and at home in the body. It's better to be with the Lord. Uh, But it is not a perfect existence in every respect. The saints in heaven wait for the final resurrection uh, because they know they've left their bodies behind and they wait to be reunited with them. So we see this especially in in 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, The the tension, you you see the tension in what Paul is writing there. He draws this contrast between our earthly tent, that's our physical body, our earthly bodies, and our heavenly dwelling, which is the raised, glorious body that we await. And he says, our desire, unlike the Greeks and unlike the wise of this world, our desire is not to be unclothed to be without the body, to be spiritual beings floating around in spiritual places. That's not our hope, but rather that we would be, he says, further clothed, with, that is clothed with an eternal and immortal body. That's our hope. So he says, while we're at home in the body, because this body's our home, we will be away, we are presently away uh, physically uh, from the Lord. Uh, And he says, we're of good courage such that we would even rather be away from our bodies if that means being at home with the Lord. But neither of those two things is our eternal hope or our eternal destination. On the final day, our hope is just like Job's hope. 
that the Lord will stand upon the earth and will see him in our flesh with our own eyes. Uh, uh, that's why Paul also says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that the body uh, will be raised, but it won't be exactly the same as the body that is sown. The body that will be raised will be a glorious, renewed, perfected body. Uh, it will be the same, but also profoundly different. Uh, the analogy Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 is the body that we wait for is as different from the body we have as the full-grown plant is different from the seed that's placed in the earth. Uh, there, there's a glory that the seed cannot begin to comprehend. Uh, it, it cannot know how glorious it will be. And, and we can say, yeah, it's, it's still the same body. It's the same seed that was planted is, is the plant that comes out. Uh, and yet it's so glorious, so much different, uh, more different than what was sown. Uh, uh, we, so we will recognize on the final day, we'll recognize our bodies. We'll say, yeah, this is the same body that I laid into the ground. Uh, it's the same organism, you might say, but it's radically transformed. It's radically better. Uh, one of the differences, just to get our minds going, uh, one of the differences that Scripture mentions, the Lord Jesus mentions, uh, He tells us in the resurrection there will be no marriage. Now, we can't imagine what that would be like. Some of us might even uh, think to ourselves, I don't know that I want that uh, existence. Uh, And yet, the biblical perspective is we trust that God who created the body and God who created the gift of marriage uh, in this seed form as we know it will create something that much more glorious. If he's wise enough to make this, he's wise enough to make something much better than this. Well, since that is the Christian hope, I want to uh, conclude with a few words of application, especially concerning our present attitude towards the body. I'll break it down into two principles. Number one, on the one hand, we need to recognize that this present body that we have now is broken, fallen, sinful, corrupted, and destined to die. That's the truth concerning the body we have now. It carries in it the corruptions of sin. When we fell into sin, we fell body, soul, and spirit. Uh, And therefore, the body that we now possess needs to die in order to be raised perfect and free from sin. In this sense, we recognize the bodies we have now will not and cannot live forever. Uh, And so, in one sense, we do despise or depreciate our present bodies. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, I treat my body severely. And there he's referring to his subjection of his body to, to the spiritual disciplines, fasting, praying, laboring for the kingdom. He was hard on his body. Uh, and his body showed the marks of that. Uh, Likewise, in in 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, uh, Paul says, uh, Even though bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. Uh, So, Paul does acknowledge there's some value to taking care of your body, to training your body. Uh, But the whole force of that passage is, uh, it's a limited value. Our bodies have limited value because they must die. 
Uh, one can mention uh, many other examples uh, in Christian history. You think of the great theologian John Calvin. Uh, he died at the young age of 54 uh, in part because he worked his body to death. Uh, he, he poured himself out till there was nothing left. Uh, now, in our culture, this runs against our culture because we are so quick to criticize those who would treat their bodies severely in that way. Uh, and to some extent, that, that culture even uh, exists within the church. We talk about the importance of taking care of our bodies. And again, Timothy shows there's some value to that. Uh, but it's not an absolute value. Our bodies as they are will not and cannot last forever. And it is more important that they be put to good use than that they be well preserved. It's more important we use them than we try than that we try to keep them. They are going to die. Again, this runs against our culture because in our Canadian culture, uh, we place a religiously high value on the body, even though at the same time our culture violates and desecrates the body in, in, in various ways. Uh, but you know, we insist on things like buying organic food or filling ourselves with vitamins or anointing our skins with essential oils. Uh, but none of that will make our bodies last forever. No organic food, no vitamins, no essential oils uh, will keep you from dying. Best case scenario, you will be a corpse filled with organic food, vitamins, and essential oils. You're still going to die. And sometimes Christians speak as if it's a sin to eat fast food, to go to McDonald's, uh, because you know, we're supposed to take care of our bodies. Now, you might be able to make the argument it's unwise to do so, uh, because it will unnecessarily shorten your lifespan, and perhaps that is so. Uh, but you could also then go to the extreme of saying, well, then it's a sin to do anything short of having a perfect workout schedule and eating perfectly uh, healthy food, uh, which is absurd. None of that will save us. None of that will save your bodies from death. Uh, so although we do care for our bodies, uh, within reason, we do not worship them or place any hope in them as our culture does. As the Lord Jesus also taught us, it's not what goes into the body uh, that makes it unclean. It's what comes out of it. And Paul teaches the same thing in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, we don't make rules about what foods we can eat. Uh, because both our food and even the stomach to which it goes are both perishing. Uh, they will perish. Uh, wh whether it's McDonald's or it's an organic vegan diet, it will all perish, and so will the stomach that consumes it. Now, one might cause it to perish more quickly than the other, uh, but it's, then it's a matter of degree. Now, our world places hope, places a, a, an almost eternal worshiping hope in the body. And you see this, by the way, that certain substances like acai fruit uh, or essential oils or some other fad just take up our, our culture and our advertisers having some almost transformative, transcendental power. Uh, and people buy into that kind of advertising. When my wife and I went to Mexico last year, we, we swam in some, uh, some underground caverns and the tourist guides had to first stop and tell us how this water has this uh, transformative and transcendental effect on, on your bodies. And, and there are people that believe that. That's their hope. 
their, in their body. Well, as Christians, we recognize that's a vain hope. It's a vain hope. And nothing we put on our bodies or into our bodies will save them from death. If we eat well and exercise well, we do so to honor the bodies that God has made, uh, to make good use of them in God's service, but not to preserve them, nor to obtain uh, any sort of spiritual life from them. Uh, we, We cannot transform them into something heavenly or something immortal. That work belongs to Christ, not to food or water or chemicals or anything else. They are of no use as far as that goes. That's our first principle. Uh, There is a sense in which we do uh, depreciate this present body. Uh, But that being said, uh, we also, our second principle, we also do regard our bodies as the good creation of God, as part of the very people we are, ourselves, that cannot be detached from us, and therefore also as holy to God, of sufficient value to God even, that He will not forget them or leave them behind, but will ultimately raise them on the last day. So Paul tells us in that same text in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, where he speaks of the body perishing, he also says our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit and therefore to be regarded as holy. Now here's the difference between the Christian attitude towards the body and the attitude of the world. Uh, The world lives for the body. The world worships the body, uh, believing that the body, because it's all there is, ought to be worshipped. And the the world indulges the body in every bodily pleasure. Uh, and, And like anything else of creation, if you worship it, you ultimately will destroy it. You worship your kids, you'll destroy them. You worship a relationship, you'll ruin it. You worship your body, it will perish, and you will have nothing in the end. And so Paul talks about how uh, people, as they worship the body, engaging in sexual immorality, an act of worship, uh, even as they worship it, they sin against their own bodies. Uh, So the transsexual violates his own body by cutting off uh, what God has created. Uh, In his worship of the body, he violates and destroys the body. Uh, As Christians, we do not worship the body We worship the God who created it. Uh, And this gives us then the right perspective on our bodies. We don't throw them away. We don't regard them as evil as the pagans do. But we also don't worship them as our culture does. Instead, we worship God and regard our bodies as the good creation, the gift of God. And so we also recognize that everything we do with our bodies is an act of worship with spiritual consequences, whether we are joining them to a prostitute or to pornography uh, and so violating our bodies, or whether we are using them to worship Christ and to glorify God. Everything we do with our bodies is worship. It's all worship. So Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Uh, Again, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Uh, So because Christ has bought us, body and soul, it's what we confess in Lord's Day 1, 2, I belong to my faithful Savior, life and death, body and soul. 
Uh, we, because Christ has bought us also in our bodies, we recognize our, our, our flesh is holy to Him uh, and, and belongs to Him. Uh, we don't worship it, but we worship Him with it. Uh, and because our bodies belong to Him, we also know that He cares for them as part of who we are. Uh, and even when we die and have to bury these bodies in the dirt, uh, we know He will not forget them. He will raise them on the last day. That's why when we, when we die as Christians, we don't cremate our bodies. We don't burn them. Instead, we bury them. We bury them as an act of faith. Uh, we plant our bodies in the earth in faith that what we plant into the ground, God will one day raise up from the ground. The earth as it is now is a field or a garden uh, that is planted with the bodies of the saints that are bought with the blood of Christ that one day will sprout into the most fruitful harvest that the earth has ever seen. And that is our Christian hope. Amen.